0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network's exclusive coverage of the Cardinal Health Retail Business Conference 2017 Conference and Exhibition in San Antonio, Texas. RBC is more than a pharmacy business conference. This interactive gathering of pharmacy owners started in 1990 as a regional show and has since grown into the industry's largest trade show for independent pharmacies. While the conference location changes from year to year, the mission of the RBC remains the same, to help independent pharmacies navigate the ever-changing Marketplace by giving them access to the best pharmacy business vendors in the industry. And now, here are your hosts of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Dr. Aaron Albert and Todd Urey.
1: Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is Todd Urey, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast. I'm here with my faithful co host, Dr. Aaron Albert. Hello. Welcome to RBC 2017 here in San Antonio, Texas. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to be here. We are here. We'll be with Sean Callinacos, Senior Vice President of Government Relations at Cardinal Health. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. Very much Todd, pleasure to be here. So, government relations in the industry of pharmacy, I can't think of something more out front Paving the way for what's to come for different facets of our industry and how important those government relations are to setting standards, policies and procedures and really opening up doors. So my first question is, uh, Sean, just tell us about yourself, tell us about your background and what you do at Cardinal Health. Thank you.
2: Um, I joined Cardinal Health about 18 months ago, run global government affairs. My prior background was working with Sanofi aventis as a lobbyist for 12 years, okay. and before that on Capitol Hill and as an, as an attorney.
1: Excellent. So um, Aaron happens to also be an attorney, and I think you've always had different viewpoints than what I've had because coming from a marketing and business development background, I'm not as, I guess, tapped into some of that stuff. So I'm going to turn it over to Aaron for some of our first questions.
3: Yeah, so lots going on right now with the Affordable Care Act or its demise, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where do you think federal government healthcare is headed at this point? And I know it's very smoke and mirrors at this point, but...
2: And, and today, uh, today is a very pivotal day. Starting at noon, they're going to uh, be voting in the Senate for uh, potentially dozens of hours on their version. Of the ACA repeal and replace, uh, I think as we've all seen, they've had some difficulty getting their bill out. The House did it in early summer. It looks like where they're headed is a very narrow bill, what they're calling a skinny repeal. Uh, repeals the insurance mandates on employers and individuals, sending it to conference with the House, which means this debate will will drag out potentially into the fall, which is not anything the congressional leadership would like. They'd like to move on in the fall to taxes.
3: There's a lot of argument out there that innovation in healthcare really occurs more at the state level in the U.S. versus the federal level. Um, you know, What are your thoughts on moving maybe healthcare down to the state level? Um, obviously, Medicaid is a shared program between feds and state, but um, any thoughts on that?
2: No, that's a good question. Uh, I think over the last decade, the more and more paralysis you see in Washington, the more innovation you see in the states. It used to be it was the largest states like California would take the lead on policy. But now you're seeing a range of states take an, act, uh, take an active role. Uh, For example, Iowa has an innovative proposal to get a waiver from Medicaid if if, um, they don't get coverage in the exchanges. Um, You see certain attempts in the states, in Ohio, California, and other states on price controls on drugs. Um, I think that's a reflection of the paralysis in Washington. But new administration, some new blood, Um, I think you're going to see some new um, activities, particularly the, the FDA commissioner. I think we'll push hard to have more market price competition from generics, uh, particularly in the biosimilar space, where where many would argue the EU has been more aggressive in a, in, in licensing biosimilars.
1: When I think of reimbursement, and we think of standard reimbursement or today's mm. cut, you know run of the mill, what I'm looking at is as providers in obtaining provider status, there's going to be new opportunities that are going to open up for reimbursement for specific services that pharmacists are already doing, and they're not being compensated for it. So as someone with your finger on the pulse, what type of services do you see becoming reimbursable through CMS guidelines?
2: That's a very good question, because with a new administration, a lot of the proposals that was coming out of CMMI were were thrown into question. I think the last administration, um, the Part B proposal they put out there was very controversial and and, um, create a lot of political backlash on Capitol Hill. However, I think the, the market needs for cost containment are still there. So I think CMMI still could play a potentially very helpful role. Uh, In looking at some of these big programs, 340B and and Part B are good examples. 340B, um, there are uh, some proposals out there for dramatic cuts. I I think that's the opening gambit. I I think it's a long way to go.
1: Um, I'm hearing that there's like the the coming of the end of 340B, and some people say that's not going to happen, and other people say it is going to happen. So, yeah, expand upon that.
2: Yeah, that is, you know, there there are many um, of the pharmaceutical companies that feel that 340B has expanded beyond um, its its intent, and that hospitals uh, have expanded it unfairly. There's been some congressional oversight, but a tremendously uh, difficult issue to deal with. There was administrative efforts with a so-called mega rule to um, limit the program that was then withdrawn. I think you're going to see more activity on that. I think it's going to take a long, a long while, most of this year at least, to to come at some sort of clarity on 340B. I think congressional activity uh, is unlikely that two sides are deadlocked. So I think, again, it will come from administrative activity.
3: So globally, the United States is not the best healthcare system Mm. out there. So what are some of the best practices that you've seen globally from other countries? Who's doing it right when it comes to healthcare?
2: Uh, and that's a very good question and it comes down to in many countries uh, and the U.S. is an example of this we look at our healthcare system uh, there's certain parts that are very inefficient very costly but it's a it's based on the culture and our history and every country has that um, you know for an example in England they have the nice system where they will evaluate um, cost benefit on drugs very aggressively and often deny payment on certain drugs, either classified as lifestyle or end-of-life drugs that don't extend life beyond a certain period. Um, It's an approach that would not be accepted in the United States. I think some other systems uh, perhaps have been more um, aggressive on costs. The EU uh, licensing biosimilars is a good example. And on coverage, most of the European countries adopt an approach similar to Switzerland. It would be government mandate with aggressive private uh, competition. Dozens, if not hundreds, of insurance companies competing for the same customers. But each country is largely dependent on its history and culture. And we're definitely, um, we have parts of the healthcare system here that, that are inefficient and, and need looking at. For the last decade, we've, we've spent all the time on what has become the uh, ACA marketplace. It's important to remember, those only cover 7% of right. Americans. Most Americans still get coverage by the employer, VA, Medicaid, Medicare, and that's sometimes forgotten in this debate.
3: And there's many, I have a lot of friends right now in the pharmacy world who are getting ready to retire, and they're very nervous about it because they mm. don't know what Medicare is going to look like moving forward as well. So
2: and that and it may be a program that is expanded uh, for example to the uh, from 65 to 55 to cover a lot of those young retirees or or people who've lost jobs Um, those are generally cheaper patients to insure uh, insure than the older medicare uh, patients Uh, medicaid obviously Um, Republicans, in their ACA bill, have made an effort to change the program, but it's run into a lot of political problems
1: um, because of the potential uh, loss of coverage. Mm -hmm. So we're all standing around with our arms folded, impatiently waiting for provider status to actually come to be. Which of the states, I know there's several, that have already recognized pharmacists as providers, as true healthcare providers, from a reimbursement perspective, which of those states are there that are actually? Is it California? In California, who there, else?
2: There, there's a handful. California is definitely the lead. Um, it tends to lead on a lot of these issues from sheer size, and I would say a, a very sophisticated um, legislative system based on the on the size. So, they California often tends to be um, almost the better test on a lot of these programs, right. and I think. We've seen that in healthcare. They had a major push, for example, last year to rein in prices with a um, the drug pricing ballot initiative uh, where outside and inside parties spent over $100 million on it. Um, there are very few states that can kind of match the reach of what they try to do legislatively.
1: Sean, have you seen any studies come out of the state of California to show that in fact, since pharmacists are being given more credit and more ability to manage patient care have there been any studies that have shown because of provider status that the outcomes are actually better for patient care and for patients I would have to, to look into that
2: but um, i'm not uh, I'm not familiar it's not to say there aren't I, I'm just not familiar with that uh, I
3: with know those. As, as well with oral contraceptives mm. being prescribable by uh, pharmacists now—that's a hot issue mm-hmm. in the state of California, and you know, prescribing expanding for pharmacists across the fifty states is a huge hot topic right now in pharmacy law, at least.
1: Great. So, what I'm, what I, the reason why I asked that question is, I'm wondering the roll down with the influence of the state of California if it's going to help to get provider status at a national level faster than what pace we're at, and what is your view of that? What, where are we with? The provider status law.
2: I, I think you know the problem you're having at the federal level. Um, sometimes there's surprisingly little uptake from the innovation from the states, and I think it's just a function of of a bottleneck of of the healthcare work that they hope to do in Congress. There's so many important issues that they need to get to, and they've really been hung up on the ACA bill now for seven months, when the goal originally was to do it in January. So. Everything has been backlogged. The committees of jurisdiction have spent the first six, seven months on this, and you're left with the, um, the difficult reality that they're about to take a, a lengthy August recess, they'll come back in September, then they have other issues on budgets to handle with. A lot of these very important um, issues haven't gotten the attention early on I think that they need to, a lot of the agencies like HHS and um, the other um, agencies still are not fully uh, staffed, uh, not by a long shot, and that is okay. delaying things. I think um, Mr. Price has made a good start at HHS, but a lot of the positions are vacant and people are still reevaluating prior administration activities and looking for their own people to bring in. Um, so it's gonna be, I think it's going to be into 2018.
1: So if we uh, come back to Cardinal Health, what specific initiatives are you focused on for Cardinal Health um, customers that play into government relations?
2: I think uh, particularly for uh, the uh, customers we have here with us today, obviously following the ACA repeal, advocating for our customers there has been very important. Uh, Drug pricing, I think there is a great interest in what the FDA commissioner might be doing with generics, particularly biosimilars. Um, The opioid crisis has hit really every part of what pharmacists do. They see it every day. Um, They are regulated by the states, as are doctors. However, I think you're going to see the federal government uh, perhaps piggybacking on what some of the states do in their attempt to uh, remediate the opioid crisis. That may involve things like uh, additional training for pharmacists on pain management. There's certainly state limitations on the number of um, opioids that can be prescribed at a time. Our home state of Ohio, uh, by the governor's order several months ago is limited to seven pills. That's mm-hmm. becoming quite quite right. common. PDMPs, 49 states have them, and now Missouri joined this week by exact, oh, they did by executive <laughs> <Finally>. order. <laughs> there was kind of a, a quirky <laughs> outlier, and um, uh, there I think we're going to build on state initiatives um, on on that issue, and that obviously uh, every one of our pharmacist customers see,
1: sees that crisis every day. Um we're gonna have an opportunity during this pharmacy podcast series to have Generation RX on the show in part of the RBC um, 2017 conference. I'm very interested in that interview to hear how they have set up community pharmacy to really be um, key players in helping with this opioid uh, epidemic. And if you think of it, they're seeing their patients 10 times more than the physician and are able, I think, to make uh, a lot more recommendations, including exercising medication therapy management as a part of uh, recovery uh, for these patients. I think that's right, and I think we all uh, saw and were moved by the the
2: video this morning at the beginning of the session, right. where one of the patients um, of the pharmacist talked about his struggle with addiction and how his pharmacist had played a really key role in that, so um, I think that, that was a good reminder of just the powerful work that is needed to be done. There, there's no silver bullet. Uh, I think the interview will be very interesting. Uh, there's obviously a huge need for federal, at the federal level to provide treatment dollars. Our home state, Senator uh, Rob Portman, has added 45 billion into the healthcare bill for that, and I think that is a good start. It's, um, I'm glad to say, one of the few bipartisan issues on capitol hill Um, excellent there's not a congressman who won't hear the stories when he or she is out in a district and doing town halls and and i think you know many of them their friends their family are touched by this as well so truly is bipartisan they're looking heavily at providing funding and at the state level funding obviously and and education from first grade up, age-appropriate education. Our attorney general in Ohio, Mr. DeWine, said that is the single best thing you can do.
1: So you have the audience and the ears of our 65,000 plus listeners out there throughout the country that really tune in to the Pharmacy Podcast. Call to action. What would you like to say to our listeners as someone who is deep into government relations Um, What call to action, what suggestion can you make to our pharmacist listeners, our pharmacy owners, from a government relations perspective?
2: I would say, you know, as I would say to, to any American right now, I mean, the political system this year is very challenging. It's challenging to be positive about it and be engaged, but community pharmacists are a tremendous asset to the community, and I think the elected officials, local, state, and federal know this. They'll listen to your voice. If you have an issue, work with your, your trade groups and your community groups. Um, don't, um, don't give up on being an active part of the political environment. Um, small business owners like yourselves are, are, are a critical voice in, in Washington and a very well-respected community uh, in Washington. Amen.
1: Sean, thank you so much for being part of the RBC's 2017 Pharmacy Podcast Network coverage here in San Antonio, and any closing words?
2: No, just uh, thank you for, uh, for this great opportunity.
1: Thank you. Thanks.
0: Cardinal Health, helping independent pharmacies successfully grow their pharmacy businesses for over 45 years while advocating stronger relationships with patients for healthier communities throughout the country. We thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast live coverage of the Cardinal Health RBC 2017. Be sure to join us next year for the RBC 2018 in downtown beautiful San Diego, California, June 27th through June 30th.